God bless us read the scripture. This is an accidental Father's Day sermon. Um, I had mentioned I don't, I don't necessarily plan my sermons based on what's coming up, uh, which is why I was very fortunate not to talk about the adulterous woman on Mother's Day. Uh, and it just so happens that today happens to be focused on the idea of Jesus and the Father being one. Um, so I want to let you know this morning that it is not so much a Father's Day sermon, although the title might suggest otherwise. It's a Jesus sermon. It's a sermon about who Jesus is, his identity, and what we should know about him. And so I want to take a moment this morning to just reread a little bit of what Jesus has said here. It says, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep Hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. This text here, it is, it is profound. You know, Kyle shared a lot with us last week about the idea of the sheep knowing the voice of the shepherd. And that's an essential part of understanding who Jesus is. If we hear the voice of Jesus and we follow him, it's because we are his sheep. But that, that's really an allusion to a lot of Old Testament imagery that draws us into understanding who God is what he cares about. In fact, uh, this morning, I want to I think for just a moment about some, some words from the book of Ezekiel. See, God sends the prophet to speak to the, the nation, and, and he says to them in God's words that there are a lot of shepherds that have been caring for the flocks of Israel, and yet they have not been caring for the flocks of Israel. They're, they're responsible for that role. It is their job to see to their care, but they have neglected it entirely. And God is outraged by this. He talks about how these these flocks are being given over to the wild animals, that they're being lost, that that they can't be counted or numbered because they are far, far flung. They're not where they're supposed to be. If you remember last week, Kyle had mentioned the idea of the hired hands that come in to take care of the flocks, and they don't care for the sheep. What they care for is the paycheck. And as long as they're getting the paycheck, they don't care so much about whether or not the sheep are cared for. And God, through Ezekiel, accuses all of these these individuals, these shepherds of Israel, of essentially just being hired hands. And in many ways, I think that this looks forward to Jesus. A time when Jesus arrives... And the individuals who are the shepherd of the sheep of Israel are not doing their job. They're careless, they're thoughtless, their touch, their voice. It's not the touch and voice of the good shepherd. It's the touch and voice of the hired hand. So when Jesus says, 
that they are his sheep. I think that he's referring back to this idea here in Ezekiel 34, verse 11 through 15. I want to read this to you, and I want you to hear these words, first and foremost, of the words of the God of Israel, but then as the God of Israel incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ. I want you to hear this. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I... I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land and I will feed them. On the mountains of Israel, by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country, I will feed them with good pasture. And on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land. And on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. God will attend to his people himself. For generations and generations and generations, there was a failure of those hired hands to lead the people in the ways of righteousness. If you go back and you read in the the times of the prophets, what you see over and over and over again is that the kings and the priests and the stewards themselves, the, the individuals who would go and attend in the temple, They all began to drift away from what it was that God had called them to. And in doing so, they led the people away from where it was that God desired them to be. And each time that Israel would fall into the failure of their leaders, they would become scattered. But God would draw them back. And at the time of Christ, the people were very much scattered. They were not where they were supposed to be. They were not doing what they were supposed to be doing. And the teachers who should have known better were more fixated on making sure that they were obeying the Sabbath in the correct ways as their mind regarded it than that the people would be led to the the pasture that God had intended for them. When Jesus arrives and he calls himself the good shepherd, and he says, my sheep will know my voice, he's making a profound statement about what he's come to do. That there are a remnant that Jesus is going to draw to himself. But Jesus makes two references in this passage that I think are significant. First of all, this one to not just Ezekiel, but a lot of the shepherd and sheep language that occurs in the Old Testament. We can all think of the 23rd Psalm, right? The Lord is my shepherd. He makes a second reference here. He says, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. Now, if you were raised an Israelite, you knew what was called the Shema. It was this, this prayer that they, they would recite on a regular basis. And Jesus quotes it many times throughout his ministry. Jesus makes it a point that this is, 
This is, in fact, the greatest command contained within the prayer of the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your might, your soul, your strength, right? Uh, Mind, soul, and strength. But the beginning of that, the beginning of the Shema is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. In fact, I want to pop this up on the screen here for you to look at. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is a statement first and foremost about the sanctity of God's holy position, that there is no one else like him. In fact, the first several commands that are given to the Israelite people in the Ten Commandments really clarify that there is one God and that there are to be no other gods before, beside, near, or around him. That in fact, as Israel is concerned, the way that they regard their God, Yahweh, the one who delivered them out of Egypt, is as the singular figure worthy of their worship. And that they're not supposed to make images of him or images that would stand in place of him or images that would represent some other God because that would be even worse. But instead, they are supposed to recognize that there is one God and that the way that they worship him is directly. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This makes Israel a monotheistic religion, a religion very different from many of the religions around them. Now, here's the deal. A lot of religions might have called themselves monotheistic at the same time because we only worship one God in this town, but we acknowledge the power and strength of other gods. You know, here in this town, here in in, uh, Ephesus, or here in Laodicea, we worship the one patron god of our town, but we recognize there are a lot of other gods that might vie for our attention, and you know, if they were to show us that they were worthy of worship, we might drift in that. Israel was specifically commanded, the Lord your God is one, You will worship him alone. There will be no other gods before him. That Hebrew word is really flexible, that before. It could mean beside, alongside, behind him. In fact, it could mean there should be no other gods anywhere in the vicinity of the God that you are worshiping. And so when Jesus says, I and the Father are one, All of these Israelite people who have been saying the Shema from the time of their birth, hearing it spoken from the words of their fathers and mothers, off of their lips, out of their mouths, repeated on a daily basis, they know the Lord, the God of Israel, is one. And for Jesus to say, I and the Father are one, is a very bold proclamation. I don't think it's a mistake on Jesus's part. I don't think it's coincidental. In fact, I don't think there are a lot of things that Jesus ever did coincidentally. 
I think when we look at Scripture, what we see is that Jesus is the most intentional person in the history of the world. There was a time I thought it was Sean Jones, but then I started reading my Bible a little bit more. Sean is a very intentional person. Jesus does things intentionally, and when he says, the Father and I are one, he is making a bold proclamation about his own identity. He is saying, I am. Hear those words again. I am. Jesus has done this throughout the book. And at the beginning of the passage we read, Jesus says, look, I've already told you who I am. I've told you. Because the Israelite people have come to him and they're like, if you're the Messiah, could you just tell us that? And he says, I've been telling you that the whole time, but you don't listen. I am. I am. And here, Jesus spells it out very clearly. I am the good shepherd. My sheep will hear my voice. If you need me to spell it out a little bit more, let me just put it here. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God. I and the Father are one. Don't be mistaken about the identity of Jesus. There are a lot of people out there who can read the scriptures and over and over again they'll say, Jesus doesn't say that he's God. Well, they've never read the Gospel of John. Or if they have, they've read it in a way that completely ignores the very intentional choices Jesus is making about explaining who he is, about explaining what he's come to do. Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah of Israel, but the people have the wrong sort of idea about what the Messiah of Israel was going to be. Because here's the deal. They all think it's going to be a man who's going to sit on a throne, who's going to proclaim himself great, who's going to do battle against the Romans, who's going to do battle against the Canaanites, who's going to do battle against whoever else might rise up. And Jesus says, look, you've got the wrong sort of idea about who the Messiah is because no man alone will save you. The only one who can save you is the shepherd. The good shepherd whom you belong to. We've tried doing it with men. We've had your kings come along and they're just hired hands. No man alone can be your Messiah. In order for you to be saved, you need God to come and do the job himself. You want to know if Jesus is the Messiah, listen to his words. I and the Father are one. That's why Jesus can make the claim to be the shepherd whose sheep hear his voice. That's why Jesus can be the one to feed the multitudes. That's why Jesus can be the one to cast out the demons, to heal the sick, to give the lame the ability to walk, and the blind, the ability to see. Because David was a great guy who sat on a really wonderful throne and did a lot of really good things in the name of the Lord and cast out armies from the nation of Israel. But David died. And all the people who followed David died. David never healed the blind, 
or gave the lame the ability to walk again. David reigned in a time that became a time of plenty under his son Solomon. But David couldn't build the house of the Lord and call the people to it. Solomon was a wise man who sat on a throne and did a lot of really good and impressive things. But you know what? Solomon was incapable of keeping the people from wandering astray because he was incapable of leading himself, of keeping from leading himself astray. Solomon could not save Israel. David could not save Israel. And a long list of kings that followed them could not save Israel. The high priest could not save Israel. The prophets could not save Israel. John the Baptist, whom Jesus says there was no greater man born of woman than John the Baptist, could not save Israel. And if the greatest man born of woman couldn't save Israel, the only solution was for God to do it himself. And so throughout the book, Jesus has given these signs as to his identity. And he's spoken in pretty clear language as to who he is and what he's there to do. But not a lot of people really liked this. It says the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. If you've noticed, I've I've mentioned this a couple of times, it's just amazing how these stones magically appear because Jesus is once again at the temple. At the beginning of this passage, we're reading about how it's the Feast of Dedication, which, if you want to know, that's Hanukkah. Uh, And Jesus is wandering around the temple. He's walking, and he's—he's—it's the winter time. He's enjoying Jerusalem, and there in the temple, he's confronted. And now this is like the third time that these stones have magically appeared in the temple for people to be able to stone someone. In the first case, it was the woman caught in adultery. Then they wanted to stone Jesus, and now they want to stone Jesus again. I don't know where they're getting all these stones. Maybe they just kept like a neat little tidy, like this is the stoning pile here, right? But they find the stones to stone Jesus because what he's told them is either absolutely true and tremendously inconvenient for them, or it's blasphemy. I'm going to leave it up to you for just a moment to think about that. I want to ask you to think in your head, which of those two do you think is more likely? So they pick up the stones to stone him again, and then in verse 32, although it's going to say verse 31 up there, Jesus says this, I have shown you many good works from the Father. I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? I think this is the human problem when we encounter Jesus. Either he is the Son of God, which is very inconvenient for many of us, or he's blaspheming. And we have to ask ourselves, what is it about Jesus that I want to stone him for? Why do I want to reject him? Is it because what he says is just a little too convicting and I don't want to be convicted? 
Is it because if he is in fact who he says he is, I've got to reevaluate a lot about the way I live, about the way that I treat the people that are around me, about the way that I care or have not cared for the poor, the sick, and the outcast? Or is it because we really don't believe he is who he says he is? And we find ourselves outraged by that. At this point, I think Jesus has said, look, what have I done to make you think I'm anyone other than who I've said I am? Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So without much reflection, that's my little insert there, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Jesus poses this question to each and every one of us. Do the things I do and the things I say speak for themselves? What conclusions can you come to based on who Jesus has presented himself to be? You know, we've been doing this series and we've titled it Dwelling with Jesus because to me, the most important thing we can do is come to a clear understanding of who Jesus is because if we understand who Jesus is, we have a reckoning for ourselves about the way we were before we encountered him and whether or not we have been changed by our encounter with him. But the only way that we can come to the correct conclusions about Jesus and be transformed by him is to dwell with him. There's a little passage that follows what we've just read today, and it's not going to be part of a sermon. Uh, Next week, we're moving on to Lazarus, and Ben Stutzman is going to uh, do a fantastic job sharing that with you. But Here's the key. Jesus goes across the river back to where John was baptizing, and it's there that he encounters a group of people that have heard the teaching of John the Baptist. And they think on it, and they've dwelt on it, and they've anticipated seeing about, or seeing the coming about of what John has promised. And it says that he dwelt there for many days. He stayed there for many days. And many there came to believe. It doesn't tell us that on that side of the river, in that place, he spent a lot of time raising the dead, healing the sick, casting out demons. He may very well have done those things. But Jesus stays there and dwells with them for a period of time. And they come to belief. This whole other group of people has heard his word, have heard his words. They have witnessed the signs and wonders that he's performed, and they're unconvinced. But not many of them dwelt with Jesus. Not many of them came to see where he was staying and stayed with him. Not many of them spent enough time to ask him questions one-on-one. And if you've noticed anything about the Gospel of John, 
It's the people who spend time with Jesus that become convicted about his identity. Individuals like Nicodemus, the Samaritan woman at the well, the woman caught in adultery who spends a short amount of time alone with Jesus. The disciples who come and follow him, see where he stays, and stay with him. If you struggle to understand who Jesus is, if you, if you find yourself struggling to be changed by your encounter with him, I want to encourage you to spend just a little more time with him. Actually, nix that. Spend a lot more time with him. We could all use the kind of change that comes from spending time with Jesus. I don't know about you, but sometimes I find it difficult in my day-to-day life. I want, I want to be clear here. I spend a lot of time preparing for my sermons. I don't necessarily spend as much time as I feel I should just sitting with Jesus and dwelling with him. And if you're like me, maybe it's time for you to make some time in your day to dwell with Jesus, to think about who he is, what he says about himself, what his priorities are, the kinds of things that maybe in your own life need to be altered so that you can stay where he stays. This is my encouragement to you this morning. Dwell with Jesus this week. Be changed by your proximity to the good shepherd. And know that when he says, I and the Father are one, he's speaking the truth. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we want to be remarkably different than the people we were before we encountered Jesus. And sometimes we find ourselves taking a step back from that and wrestling with how exactly we can be more like him because because we don't know him well enough. Take away the excuses. Help us to set aside the things that are distractions from our dwelling with Jesus and help us to take on his image more and more each day. Help us to be saved by the one who can save us, to be guided by the king who deserves the throne, to be led by the good shepherd who would tend to us, by the great physician who heals our wounds by the man who would feed us as a multitude. And in him, help us to find the truth of the identity of the God who saves us. Help us not to harden our hearts at his works and his words, but instead to be changed by them. It's all this that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have need of the church this morning, if there are ways we can serve you, bless you, uh, we want to encourage you to meet someone at the back of the auditorium. We have already had, whether you know it or not, one baptism this morning. Uh, Hazel Cronwitter was baptized before service today, so take a moment today and and greet her and give her hugs and tell her how proud you are of her uh, and welcome her into the family of God. But if you want to join Hazel in baptism, in the body of Christ, by committing yourself to him, by being buried and raised again, we offer you that as well this morning. And the good news is the water is already in the, in the uh, tank, and so we don't have to fill it and wait for it. Um, if you would like to be baptized this morning or you have need of the church, I encourage you to meet me at the back of the auditorium, and I'd be happy to visit with you. Let's, uh, let's continue worshiping our God.